Welcome to the second episode of VSTML 2017 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors, where the fun never stops. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who I can guarantee knows a very high prime number, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We are back once more, and I'm actually currently a little bit distracted by the balls of our Discord, because everyone is currently speculating what we're actually going to be doing at the end of the year. Hi guys, it's November now. You've found out, finally. <laughs> little bit of admin on the Baldur's Bar subjects uh, from last week. I did say that the high score on the suspect list was only about 40. It was actually 77 I looked it up. So that's what you've kind of got to achieve this season with your speculations. You've got to try and beat 77 points. You get 10 points for getting them all number one every week. Oh, okay. I will be working out what your score would have been had you done the suspect list each week. Right. One if there's one, there should be somebody who... Just tries to always put the same person as the as the mole every single season. It'll take about a decade, but at least once we'll get the highest score possible. And yet another very interesting episode. I do remember this one being quite a fun one, to be fair. Yeah, this this is one of the best episodes of the mole I've seen. I think it might have been about 18 months ago. We kind of half-discussed, instead of doing sort of old seasons doing here's one episode of a season and why it was so awesome this one would have been the Oregon one I think because I think even though there are ridiculous kind of divisions again and people being missing for a day you have that laser game which I think is probably the best laser game they've ever done just in terms of the entire vibe of it and you know let's be honest Emanuela Emanuela carries that entire challenge but the rest of the challenge is so much fun as well. Yeah, I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking nowadays by Vidim standards, if you have, if you have some sort of twist that carries over for multiple tasks within an episode or across multiple episodes, that usually means a double elimination is coming right near the end of the game. And luckily, that wasn't the case here. It all got contained within the same episode. And only one person went home. I can confirm there are no double eliminations in this season. I figured otherwise we probably wouldn't be doing this season. No, we wouldn't, you're right. But there are no double eliminations in this season. There is one non-elimination episode. It's pretty standard, I would say. There's one thing that I think is going to confuse you when you see it. But every episode, apart from one, does have an elimination. Well, yeah, if it's always nine episodes each season and they always have ten people, I kind of figure they have to do one one non-elim. It's a reasonably standard structure for the season, at least. So previously, four contestants found helicopter tickets to Portland, giving them a head start to earn themselves exemptions. They did find them, and the other six started as they meant to go on by winning the first two and a half thousand euros for the pots. They then watched as Arch chatted to the helicopter four, finding out about the exemptions and earning themselves the right to void one of them. The helicopter group had to choose whether to hand in their exemptions to save the rest of the group, or send someone home. In the end, three of the four chose personal safety, and the fourth person, Vincent, suffered both the humiliation of avoided exemption and being sent home first. Art says that the group is sharp from day one, bonds are being made, but how long will they last? No one can trust each other, the mole seems like such an ideal candidate that no one has a clue who they are. And I don't know whether this actually was a group decision or not, but seven of the nine people are wearing sunglasses in the family photo, and it feels like something they've coordinated. I didn't didn't even really notice the sunglasses. 
Yeah, everyone everyone apart from Ivana are wearing sunglasses. Euron has his on his head. The other seven all are actually wearing them. You can't even say, like, oh, the mole mustn't be wearing glasses. <laughs> the mole does not lie with their eyes necessarily in this season. It's the one reference I will make to that season repeatedly. And the episode title is Accommodating. Miganda. We don't even get any kind of pre-episode preamble. We get a bit from art, and then it's straight into day three in Oregon City. We get some wonderful B-roll of the baby seals. And then we go straight to the first challenge. Have I told you my seal story? And no, it isn't about the guy who sang Kiss from a Rose before you start singing it. When I was in Alaska in 2014, actually, right after we met up for the first time, we were in Ketchikan, which is the salmon capital of the world. And we were stood on this kind of wooden bridge over the river. And a seal, for literally a second, popped its head up with a salmon in its mouth, popped straight back down as I was about to take a picture of it. Oh man, if this was Pokemon Snap, you would have lost points. I know. I would have failed my Pokemon Snap had it been a seal, S-W-E-L, rather than S-E-A-L. But I was so annoyed. I'm still annoyed, what, nearly ten years later that I couldn't get that picture properly. It's like, oh man, I would have had a dugong with a Magikarp in its mouth. Have you been looking into getting a Nintendo Switch by any chance? Yes, I have. <laughs> I thought you might have. So they are in an industrial estate filled with danger signs, rust, and metal. And they're at the Blue Heron Paper Mill. It was the first industry in Oregon. They can earn up to 3,500 euros here. There are seven assignments to complete, and they have an hour. Each task requires two people. Do they have Blue Herons in Europe? I don't think so. I've never heard of Blue Heron before. Yeah, that's definitely like we have, because we have definitely have Blue Herons in uh, uh, where, where I live in town. We had a restaurant called the Blue Heron for years and years before it changed its name. So I'm thinking, eh, that could just be like, a, that could be a West Coast thing. I think it is a West Coast thing. I'm just... So I was, I was thinking, yeah, I've, because when they mentioned Oregon, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if it's just a regional thing that, and it doesn't really exist anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I've never heard of Blue Heron paper outside of this episode, obviously. So they have to make three pairs and one trio. The trio is Thomas, Emanuela, and Ivana. Emanuela immediately wanted to go with Thomas, and Sigrid and Sanna, Roos and Joachim, who had absolutely no strategy at all, and Jeroen and Diedrich are the pairs. And we get a couple of wonderful views of the graffiti, including Roos passing some graffiti saying, read it, bitch. Which I feel like might have been an instruction from art, given how close it was to their actual challenge there. And then Thomas sees a you will die sign. <laughs> I had forgotten about the graffiti, honestly. I was... Very amused by the um, the read it bitch sign, but I didn't remember Thomas talking about you will die, which is cheery, cheery, cheery stuff. It's kind of funny because like in the in the states in the early two thousands, they had the no child left behind act, which m made it so everyone kept reading at the same level, but no one could get super advanced in reading. It's like the next step to that campaign is called read it bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't remember that being passed into law. It's one step up from Dolly Parton's Imagination Library, isn't it? It goes from the Imagination Library to No Child Left Behind to Read It, Bitch. <laughs> For young adults. Oh, Oregon. And Ivana says she was unlucky. Her episode one mole was executed. Luckily for her, Thomas was her backup mole, so she wanted to go in a group with him. She, she really likes to align with her suspects. She really does, but it's not actually a bad tactic. Because if you suspect someone, it's the best place to be to be able to keep an eye on them and befriend them so you get more information in the downtime and stuff. I really don't begrudge her for doing this. I think, unlike Vincent, Ivana 
yes, she was stupid to go all in at the end of the episode, but Ivana at least had a good head on her shoulders and knew what the tactics should have been, even though she was just too easily tempted. Yeah, it's amazing just how, like, this is... We, we're, we're still going to see this happen in season 21, or I guess technically 22, where players are still going straight ticket on one person early on in the game for like the first three or four rounds. And you keep thinking, how do they keep doing this? They know you're not, they know this is a terrible, terrible strategy. <laughs> and yet they keep falling this, falling into this trap. As of the time of recording, it's less than a week and a half since we did a very long bit on how many suspects you should have at each stage of a process. And I'm not rehashing that rant again, but you should easily, up until Final 7, have three suspects. That is absolutely fine. At least three, that is. I'm trying to think, was it Joachim who said that he had six questions on three different people? Yeah, Joachim went on three different people in this one, and he did six on one person, six on another, and then eight on the last one, I think. Yeah, like that's pretty standard strategy with nine people left. On a 20-question quiz. Yeah, as much as I obviously smack my forehead at Joachim a lot in these first two episodes, both times Joachim has had the correct tactic of how to survive a test. You just play the odds, you split it between four people originally, you split it between five people, you split it between three, you never go lower than three until you get down to like final six, final seven, and then you reduce it again and you keep looking at more people, then you reduce it again as you get closer to the end. And it's up to you whether you don't, whether you don't even go down to one suspect until final four or final three. Yeah, I wouldn't go down to one suspect until final four. Yeah, because it seems it, like we've seen the evidence over the past several seasons that we've covered that having multiple suspects really saves you in this game, and that Having just one suspect any earlier than final five, it spells nothing but trouble. Yeah, I say this as someone who is so easily tempted with this sort of stuff. When I did the chase, I actually had to talk myself out of just gambling for the sake of gambling, just because, you know, I'm never going to see that much money again, potentially in one go. I'm so easily tempted with this sort of stuff, but with the mole, you have to be sensible. And whilst it's fun to go, I'm going to go straight ticket, if I'm right then I've got a ticket to the final, no matter what. As much as it's fun to do that, at final nine, you only have a one in eight chance at best of being right. Yeah. Just play the odds. It's not hard. Oh Yeah, you have to be very disciplined on the mall, I think. Which is probably like, if they had to choose contestants, that's why they probably want to choose contestants who are going to act a bit more crazy and go all in on one person because that's more fun to see. Like They don't want to cast 10 people who know how to play the mole perfectly. Otherwise, you can't get people such as Stine, or you could even argue Olche on a season or most of the Georgia cast, since so many of them do really, really mess up. <laughs> Appropriately, given what Art said last week, haste trips you up. Do not... Be hasty. Have a sit down, breathe, be patient with yourself. Don't think you have to find the mole by now. Just keep an eye out and the mole will appear. Yeah, because even if you spread between three people, over the next couple of rounds, you could very well lose a couple of those suspects anyway. Yeah. There's Joachim and someone else, I can't remember who it is, who basically say in this test at the end of the episode, I'm playing the odds on this. I'm just being sensible. And that is the tactic to 
to survive in this game one more test, and the next round could be the one where you work out who the mole is. The American version it is notorious for the eventual winner to lose their main suspect at Final Four or Final Five, and they they're always like, "Well, I'm glad I didn't go all in on one person up until this point." It just absolutely blows my mind how people can be so easily tempted to just go, I know exactly who it is, I'm just going to take a gamble. Because if you have the instinct to do that, you end up like Remco, or you end up like Ivana in this episode. But the tactic, if you really want to do that, is do it with your bond. Say, I'm between two people, you're between two people, let's both go all in on one of them. If we both survive, then we're on the right lines. If only one of us survives, we can rule someone out. I mean, it's mercenary, but it's the only way to actually survive if you're going to go all in and be stupid, which she was in the end. Or what they should do is all ten of them get together and say, okay, each person just pick one person you think is the all, all ten of us, let's go straight take it. I think that that would be ruled out. You've mentioned this before. I think that they would rule that out because it's not fun TV. Granted, only one person can go home. So maybe you split them into little pairs each week. You go in on this person, this person. <laughs> then you two go in. I think if producers got a whiff of that, they would shut it down immediately and go, this is stupid. <laughs> That's for Vidim 28 or something like that. So, Roos nearly walks past the first assignment. They have to type in the code that is spray-painted on the wall to earn 500 euros. Roos has to follow a yellow line on the floor to find the laptop to type it into. Joachim completes his code and gets no response. He heads to the laptop. And Roos has completely disappeared. He talks on the walkie-talkie, not realising that hers is sitting right next to the laptop. What would you do in that situation if you were Joachim? I'd be wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> but from a challenge point of view, assuming Joachim's not the mole here, from a challenge point of view, what I would do is just run between them and try and complete it myself. Or call someone from the group of three and go, someone needs to stand at this laptop, please, to complete this challenge. I think I'd be in too much shock that my partner suddenly disappeared that I would probably just be like, okay, okay, I'll just finish this challenge myself and then tell everybody what happened. Yeah, you definitely need to finish that challenge because he basically just gives up on it and walks away <laughs> and costs them 500 euros as a result. Yeah, it's tough to say what a lot of people would do with that in that position just because that doesn't really happen in a Vidim challenge. They don't kidnap your partner halfway into a task like that I because we watched a lot of mole over the past few years, and I, and I can't think of a scenario where that's happened, where you start a challenge in the pair, you work on it, you work on it, and then boom, you have no idea where your partner went. This is the eighth mole season we've covered in the past two years now. That's what I mean. I'm, I'm scanning my brain through all, all the challenges we've covered as of late, and all the ones I know from the American version, and if they have, it's very, very rare to just pluck people away without warning, without telling the contestants halfway into a challenge. Usually there's some sort of notification, not like, oh, uh, I guess we'll just eventually wait for some news about this. <laughs> Even four years later, there is still no explanation to the rhyme or reason of stealing, of stealing these three people. There's absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. Still, no one has ever explained why they were picked. That's right, we, we never do find out. My guess is it was probably a combination of criteria. A, it had to be when the person was very much alone. B, they had to be in close proximity to the white van to be snuck away. Where it's like, okay, all they have to do is run 50 feet to run out the store. 
and then see there had to be some sort of criteria for each of the seven tasks that can lead to someone being taken away. Like, uh, say, if your own touches the word, I don't know, if he touches the word value, value or something like that, boom, he's taken, he's taken out of the game. Do you think if you're in the position of the mole, you would want to get kidnapped? That's a tough one, because you do have control over a thousand euros at the end of the episode. I would assume the mole got a choice. That's the only thing. I think, without it being explained to us, either the mole got a choice whether they got kidnapped, or the mole got a choice of who got kidnapped. Because that would make more sense, rather than it just being kind of random. Yeah, I mean, it is more money overall. Like, when we get into the laser game... Each person only gets control over 500 euros during the laser game, but for the kidnapping, they get control over 1,000 euros. So maybe you do get kidnapped, but there is more attention on you since you're in a much smaller group. Yeah, I don't know. I think on balance, the mole probably doesn't want to be kidnapped because they have potentially control over 3,500 euros here if they can mess up enough. And they also have control over up to... 2750 I think it was in the uh, in the laser game but I don't know it feels like the mole can't impact anything like the first or the second challenge that much unless they manage to sneak away from their partner and screw up all the other challenges yeah and then I imagine as a viewer you're not paying too much attention to the rest of the task you're wondering too much what the hell has happened to the three people oh yeah you are Although seeing, was it Sigrid and Sane trying to work that typewriter was was hilarious. It was, but the problem is it wasn't very user-friendly in terms of the audience. I have no idea what Sigrid's logic puzzle was about chicken nuggets. I have no clue what it was. (laughs) The history of the paper mill, I can kind of get because it was in English anyway, but I have no clue what Sigrid's chicken nugget task was all about. Obviously, she had to answer a question to earn 250 euros, because mathematically that works. But I have no idea what the rest of it was. McDonald's! Just type in McDonald's as your answer. So, own and Diedrich find the second challenge. They have a screen in front of them with words that will appear. They have to pull those words down from a clothesline that is around the corner. And once the words start appearing on the screen, they will not stop. Diedrich volunteers to read the words out, and own will be on the clothesline. Sigrid and San Advan, the third challenge, which is two typewriters, in which they will have to recreate the history typed on one typewriter for 250 euros on one of them, and on the other, they have to answer a logic puzzle about chicken nuggets. Does that typewriter use the same key for the number one and the letter L, like in The Amazing Race 19? I would assume no. I would assume it was a complete keyboard rather than the one that was found at Margaret Mitchell's house. Margaret Mitchell's keyboard is, uh, is one of a kind. I like how Santa even shows Secret how to load paper into a typewriter. It's like complete generation gap there. Yeah, you have to remember, typewriters might still be modern in Canada, but they're not modern in most of the rest of the world. Have you ever used a typewriter, Michael? I don't think I have. It's kind of funny because my aunt has, has an antique one that she always had in her living room. It was never used, but like it, as a kid, it was always fun to just press random keys on the typewriter. Like There was, no, there was never any paper in it. But you just see, like, the, you see the, I don't even know what you would call that, the needle of the key. But when you press the key, you see the needle fly up. And I always, always thought that was really cool. But, and then my sister, my sister used to have a typewriter for when she went to school. Granted, I don't think she would have had to use one for very long because it's not until 
what, probably close to 15 years ago that people would start using laptops in school. Yeah, but you don't immediately go from typewriters to laptops, surely. No, you have like desktop computers, but you couldn't really have desktop computers in the classroom unless you're in a unless you're in a computer lab. It's not like you can go to a random lecture at university and and set up a desktop computer in that time. Inked ribbon is the technical term on a typewriter. Wow, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> but yeah, we had one stored away somewhere. I assume we've thrown it out by now. Because that thing probably hasn't been used in about 25 years. But my sister did have one for school. Was it a portable one she had for school? Or was it like a, a big one? No, it, w- it would have been a portable one. Have you got your books? Yes. Have you got your homework? Yes. Have you got your typewriter? Yes. Imagine how heavy your backpack would be <laughs> having a typewriter that you had to bring. My god, that would suck. Because I assume that would that would have to be heavier than, quite a bit heavier than a laptop. Yeah, typewriters are very heavy. Yeah, because I was thinking my my original laptop that I used for university that I took back and forth and had my textbooks in there, my bag felt pretty damn heavy with all of that. On days where you have you go to four or five classes in the same day and you bring your laptop for the breaks and to do homework, oh, that would hurt the back someday, especially walking to get to the bus stop and come back during winter too. That would suck. You would get a reputation on the bus back from uh, from university if you whacked out your typewriter though and started uh, started doing your homework, wouldn't you? <laughs> Can you imagine? Typewriter guy's back. Clack 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 clack. Can you imagine trying? You know how once you reach the end, you had to push the slider back across. Can you imagine doing that as the bus hits a bump on the road and you're sitting on the back of the bus? There's no way you would be able to type on a bus. Back of the bus, where all the cool kids and the kids with typewriters sit. I, wanna, I'm, I have to Google when people stopped using typewriters at school. Typewriters were still pretty common in workplaces and schools until the early 90s. That makes sense. I mean, we had, I was thinking probably up until Windows 95. And then I remember the original laptops that some teachers got to use in, in school when I was in the second or third grade. You could not do much on those on those laptops. So the next person to disappear is Yeroen, like we wish he would from this season, and, you know, from Renaissance as well. And then the trio finally find a challenge with about 12 minutes left, but it is Diedrich and Yeroen's one. Diedrich finds out that Yeroen's gone, and runs to the line to try and remove as many words that he can remember before they start leaving his brain. The trio then move on to another challenge. Sana keeps getting the typing wrong, and she doesn't even have her glasses with her even though she does have her typing diploma, hence why Sigurd volunteers for that challenge. Joachim then finds a forklift. He has to build the most expensive screen using the forklift and a set of pallets. It can earn 500 euros. He asks for help from the trio, and Ivana comes over to help him. Thomas and Emanuela then find a note saying they can find 500 euros hidden in the paper loom room, and they end up both being a little bit scared of pigeons. Ivana then turns up to help Joachim after six minutes, and she spots that there are projectors on the other wall for his screens to actually reflect. And then Thomas and Emanuela start unrolling paper reams. Sana rings for Diedrich to ask what the highest prime number they know is. Sigrun messes up again, and Sana suggests that they just hand the original in. Production won't know the difference. The time runs out with three people missing. They succeed at just one assignment, which was the forklift one, and earn themselves 450 euros. And Ivana claims the money. Everyone is then confused about the disappearances again, and Sana says that she thinks they are on a speedboat with an exemption. 
So is Ivana, was Ivana just a very temporary interim treasurer or penny maser? I don't know, because I think Joachim ends up taking the money after the laser game. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you're, you, you just told me you're going all in on one person. We probably need a new penny maser before the end of the episode. <laughs> I can't remember when they actually have a proper treasurer. It must be fairly soon, you'd hope. So they then head to some food trucks for lunch. Joachim is hurt that Roos abandoned him. It's very suspicious. And Sana says she thinks that there are Yokas in the game and that the missing three have them. Something I've noticed about Sana, I do love her far more than I did in uh, in my original watch, as I mentioned last week. When she's doing a confessional, she gets very close to the camera. And it does look like she's the girl from the ring and coming out of a lake or something. She's going to start crawling across the the table. Yeah, it's ever so slightly kind of creepy at times when she gets six inches away from the camera. She sits far closer for the confessionals than anyone else. And it's something I've noticed. Everyone else seems to be at a kind of normal distance back, and then she seems to be really near to the camera, just staring at you, staring into your soul. Yeah, she she wants a bond with us. So in the evening, they are taken to a truly iconic challenge, probably the iconic challenge of the season, I warn you now. Entirely narrated by Emanuela, as it should be. It is a fun fair, and she screams. And it's the Oaks Amusement Park, and we are introduced to something that is completely irrelevant for the rest of the episode. The claw-grabbing machine, with lots of yokers, and a black exemption visible. However, I did pause it on the grabber machine, because I always remembered it as this being the one chance for them to get a black exemption. It is the one chance in the entire season where a black exemption can appear. There are no black exemptions for the entire season. Spoiler! I mean, there's none even offered for the rest of the season, I don't think. There's definitely none that actually appear. But I paused it on this screen to try and count the number of yokers, which is at least 22 in there, by the way. Someone could have had an absolute field day with that. Swimming in yokers for the rest of the season, use four per episode. Yeah, someone could have easily got themselves to the finale with that. Ivana could have used, used those four yokers. There's at least 22 in there anyway, at least per my quick maths this afternoon. But there is also not one but two black exemptions in there, because one is a little bit hidden. And there are also not one but two green exemptions hidden in there, which no one has ever spotted before. It never came up in the commentary in 2017. Nobody spotted that there were two green exemptions hidden in that machine as well. So none of the contestants ever ran by that machine, I guess? No, they ran by it. We actually see, I think it's Sana run by it at one point during her kind of run on this. But nobody looks in the claw machine. I guess there was just too much distraction for them for them to spot it. Production must have been slightly upset about that. They probably wanted that to be a big part of the challenge. I think they were devastated because I would have loved a scene of someone trying to grab a black or a green exemption given how thin they are with one of the claws. They would have never picked it up. They probably could have picked a yoker up given how wide they are. They're the big thick yokers, not as thick as in Colombia, but they are the big thick yokers still. So they probably could have got a yoker or two out of it, but they wouldn't have got an exemption or a black exemption. Would the snipers have had to stop if somebody was using the claw machine? They would have been protected because where it was... If after the episode you go back and, and watch, I think it's Sana's run. She does run past them. There's three machines. There's a Zoltar machine on the right-hand side, then like a teddy bear machine in the middle, and then the claw-grabby one. The claw-grabby one is kind of angled away, and there's something protecting you on the left-hand side. 
So you could have easily run in there, seen there were exemptions or yokers or whatever, and unless someone was directly behind you, they wouldn't have been able to shoot you. And we also get the Zoltar machine from Big, which made me laugh. Yeah, America loves Zoltar machines for some reason. I remember seeing one at Santa Monica Pier. Well, I think it's all because of the movie Big. I don't think Zoltar had any fortunes for them or anything, and I don't know what the Teddy Man machine was about either. I would assume there was maybe something hidden around one of them as well, but nobody even came close to investigating the machines as they almost certainly should have. Yeah, go to the Zoltar machine. I wish to know who the mole is. I wish to know who the mole is. <laughs> but yeah, the the grabbing machine full of advantages is one of the more memorable shots of this entire season for me, in that nobody spots it, they loaded this thing up with over 20 yokers, and then nothing happens with it. It's one of the biggest production damp squibs ever in mole history, I think. They were so hyped to introduce potentially 26 different advantages in this challenge, and zero get introduced as a result of this challenge. And nobody even spots it either, so it's not like contestants can be tormented by who could have possibly found a bunch of yokers or get plagued by it. No, they were just entirely focused on on winning, basically, which is hilarious. Yeah, it makes you wonder if the mole was in... I mean, you know the answer to it, but I'm sure at the time people were thinking, well, if nobody saw that claw machine, does that mean the mole wasn't at that challenge? Because you think the mole would want to introduce that type of chaos. Depends who you think the mole is, I guess. So Art was saying that the guards are trigger-happy, and I didn't know that a Skylanders character was guarding the amusement park at night. Yeah, I don't know why Art said trigger-happy in that. As you said last episode, there's a lot of English in, in these first two episodes, including Art at the end of his speech here saying he hopes they have fun in Oaks Park, where the fun never stops. <laughs> it's just like, I know that this isn't a clue, Art, so why are you saying it? I know it's just kind of adding a bit of charm into the introduction and stuff, but if you were a viewer not knowing who the mole is, like you, I don't know what you'd get out of Art saying where the fun never stops. So Art says that the park is covered in guards, and they are very trigger-happy. To earn money, they've got to sneak onto the rides where they will be safe and return back to the start point. Each ride can only be ridden once. They will get walkie-talkies and a laser gun, and he hopes that they have fun in Oaks Park where the fun never stops. This is also the first challenge in the entire season where we don't get a confirmed maximum amount, but I think it was 2,750, based on the values of the rides we saw. If there was any additional rides that we didn't see, then obviously that would change, but as far as I'm aware, it's 2,750. Jochen volunteers to go first and be their scout. He says that there are two things that are very important in this challenge, to find out where everything is, and to report it back to the group, neither of which he succeeds at. He sees a ride of 500 euros and the first red dots, and he seems to just be pressing and depressing the walkie-talkie button constantly. Just doing static, basically. And then he goes radio silent, just like Roos, Diedrich, and Yeroen did. However, he's actually just been on a roller coaster for 500 euros. Whee! I think you know the next question I'm going to ask. How would you have dealt with this challenge? Uh, I think I, I, I would have tried to be like Emmanuel and use the garbage can as a shield. <laughs> and yeah, and just try, try to get one of the higher the higher rides. You know as well as I do that you are not the best with roller coasters. 
Yeah, but I, I like roller coasters. I'm just, uh, I like the thrill of them. They scare me, but it's thrilling. We would have got a lot of fun reactions to you doing the roller coasters. But quite legendarily, you're not the best with them. Yeah. But yeah, I would totally be going for either that roller coaster or the zipper. I think, who made it? To Z- Thomas was on the zipper, I think. Yeah, Thomas was on the Ferris wheel rotate thing. Yeah, we we call that the zipper here, where you where it's like you're in your that was Ferris wheel cubes, and it keeps rotating and rotating. You have no idea how much worse that is in person. <laughs> I have witnessed something very similar in Disneyland, actually. The big Ferris wheel in California Disneyland in uh, California Adventure. There are static booths, and there are wonky booths where they will swing, and it is horrible. I think I went on a static one, and I still wasn't entirely comfortable with it. Yeah, the rotating ones are just like, holy hell, the shoulder straps better hold me in. (laughs) I am absolutely fine with rides, as long as I feel safe. I'm not sure I would have felt safe on that one. Actually, when I was on the zipper, because I did it a couple years ago, I had like my phone and wallet in my pocket, and I thought it would be a bit more stable, but I actually had to have my hands in my pockets to keep everything from falling out onto the floor of the zipper. I'm like, oh, I didn't imagine the gravity and rotation of it would make things, would make everything in my pockets this eager to fall out. So Joachim hides behind a planter and just tries to shoot the snipers. He has long legs and is quite fit and decides to run back to the team. He then, about two seconds later, gets comprehensively shot. He was wide open. Yeah, he makes absolutely no attempt to hide any of his vulnerable points. And even better, by the time he comes back to the group, he's forgotten all the information anyway. Yeah, he's the worst scout ever, I think is what they said. He's like, there's a ride over there. All right, Santa, you're you're good to go. Yeah, you're welcome. You're never going to go first again. Santa is second. She hates funfairs. She hates rides. She doesn't understand why anyone would do a roller coaster. She is not happy with her situation. She says your guts end up in your toes. Obviously, I remember this challenge for Emanuela. I had forgotten how good Sanna is in this challenge as well. She is so peed off that she has to do this challenge. She ends up finding a 250 euro carousel, but skips that and decides to go for a big value one, as you only live once. And her saying you only live once probably dates this season a little bit. She picks one called the Screaming Eagle, which looks deeply unpleasant, I have to say. And she says that at that point, you could either put her on this ride or kill her, she wouldn't really mind. And in probably the most disturbing moment of the entire episode, we get some really guttural screams from her. It was worse than the screams that we heard from the carousel. Yeah, she's deeply troubled by this ride, I think. It was like an out-of-body experience for her. Almost like an exorcism. It really was, wasn't it? I might have to actually make it the stinger at the end of the episode of Sana just gutturally screaming. Yeah, and everyone, because she thought... I thought I was throwing throwing up when I opened my mouth, but it was really just this loud, piercing noise. And everyone else could hear her screaming too. <laughs> We're used to Amazing Race especially doing a Screaming Eagle sound effect, but I'm not sure that this is the Screaming Eagle sound effect that anyone expected. <laughs> Somebody should have recorded my screams on the zipper. Yes, they should. Can we make that a thing next time you go to a funfair whenever one opens again? Just get someone to record your screams for me, please. Because I will make podcast gold out of that. Yeah, because I had to ride the zipper with my friend Amanda 
And then she was just laughing the whole time because I just could not stop screaming on the zipper. Sana says she doesn't want to get shot. She went through all that hell for nothing if she does get shot. She brings home 500 euros and we get a Z-snap for our troubles. Now the main event, because even Art can't stop himself teasing Emanuela after this challenge, given how brilliant her performance is. She goes full-on role-playing here. She has, I would say, probably the most fun I've ever seen anyone have on a challenge on Vidim. I die, you die. She has a blast. This is the challenge she was made of, and in fact... You know how I love to use the the gif of Emanuela from the challenge with the uh, the confessional of her going rat, 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 rat. <laughs> I don't think I've ever told you this. That is actually an official gif. It is the only time I've ever seen Vidum Production produce an official gif of something from the show. Was Emanuela's confessional going rat, 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 rat. Well, like her every single confessional during this challenge is in all caps for her. It really is. It is just so brilliant it's brilliantly edited and that's not something i can necessarily say for more modern venom seasons it's brilliantly edited her confessionals here it's brilliantly edited the entire scene she's just a born star in this episode i've never seen anybody earn 500 euros in a more entertaining and extreme way in contrast to the tasks they were doing because sure, everyone gets excited over the annual laser game, minus no laser game in Georgia. But like Emmanuel starts out, she stumbles and completely falls down right away. And you think she has no chance of getting anywhere. And then you think, oh, she's just going to want to give up. And then no, she starts firing like crazy. I die, you die. And then there's this one point where she says, I have to run for the next three seconds. And for some reason, for, I can't figure it out. She decides to scream at the top of her lungs as she runs the three seconds to get to the ride. And I'm thinking, how did she not get shot during that time? The snipers would know where she is. Just follow the person screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> I have to admit that I worried before re-watching this episode I may have overhyped Emanuela in terms of entertainment value because I do know that I talk about her a lot. It's mainly because of this challenge in this episode. I think she lived up to everything I said and more, being honest. As I said to you earlier, I think you now understand why Emanuela is the best character of this season for pretty much anyone who's watched it. And you understand why she's so beloved and why it is a real shame she couldn't come back for Renaissance. And then she uses the garbage can as a moving shield, like you see in an episode of Twenty Four. Because I think that's the last time I've seen that used, where they use like the where they use the SWAT shield, and then you come in and fire the beanbags at the guy to knock him down. Uh, here, here instead of the SWAT shield, it's the freaking garbage can that she moves along with it on wheels to get herself back to the start. And then she says, "I ran like the American police were after me," and I was thinking, "Oh boy." Four years later, that confessional is very to yes. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> as much as obviously I'm going to give her loads of credit for being really entertaining in this, she is the only one who actually has a really good tactic in this. Not just with the using the bin as a shield, which Sigurd then copies, but she uses her time on her ride to start spotting the snipers and start planning her exit route. Yeah, because Joachim says he was trying to keep an eye out for the snipers and he completely forgot. Whereas Emanuela 
does not even enjoy the ride necessarily. She just constantly looks around to look for the snipers and see where they're hiding, which is what you should do in this challenge. You should always be two steps ahead on this challenge because that's how you then get back and run like the American police are after you with 500 euros in your pocket. But what a turnaround from just stumbling, falling flat on her face at the very start of the of her run, and then just completely dominate with really smart and over-the-top strategies to get herself back and earn 500 euros. I feel like the, those 500 euros shouldn't even be for the pot. I think Artethi in the challenge said, you know what, Emmanuel, keep those 500 euros, that's all for you. I think Emanuela is amazing during the season, but this is by far her best showing in terms of entertainment. She commands the attention of the screen every opportunity in this challenge. I just honestly, I cannot heap enough praise on her for this challenge because she carries it. She elevates this from a really good idea with the laser game to being an excellent challenge. And it's it's almost entirely because of her. So Thomas is fourth. He plans to get the 750 euro ride. He says he's not easily scared, so he's going for it. He plays a soldier in a drama, so he should be quite good at this. And he ends up going to a Ferris wheel, essentially, for 250 euros. He gets rather nauseous. Yeah, the zipper is known for being the most... Because we have. I think that's the most extreme ride we, we have at our local fair each year, which sadly has now been cancelled two years in a row and is the biggest... It's actually the biggest uh, tourist attraction that we have each year because it's people from all over come just for this fair. And yeah, the zipper is always the ride that everyone comes on and gets gets absolutely frightened. People usually ride it just once or twice and like, no, never doing that again. Or after they reach a certain age, they're like, no, because they'll probably just throw up or something on it. <laughs> and yeah, I was surprised. Oh man, somebody's actually going to do the zipper. Is he going to make it? And he, and he does. But yes, it is. you do get very, very dizzy by the end of it. I don't understand why this was the same value as the carousel. I guess maybe it had to do more with location? Yeah, it can only have had more to do with location, because that is way more unpleasant than doing a carousel. Yeah, <laughs> you have no idea. There's no better way to put it. That's just way more unpleasant than doing a carousel. Sigrid is the fifth person up. We cut immediately to her being on a horrid spinning ride for 750 euros. And surprisingly, she enjoys it. Not sure I would have. She uses Emmanuel's tactic of hiding behind a bin. She says her mum will laugh at her because she has mitophobia, the fear of germs. She tries to stay away from bins in her real life, but it's her only salvation here. And a sniper gets her and it's basically like a war death. Yeah, she didn't even get to do this challenge with huge yellow ugly gloves. I'm surprised how little we saw of Sigrid's run. Yeah, she's the only one who we don't see run out, so she must have had absolutely no interesting content before she got to the ride, even though she probably had the longest run. That kind of sums up Sigrid so far in general through two episodes. We really we really haven't gotten much content from her. The only really amusing one was, was Sana, or Sana saying that she is too young for to know how to use a typewriter. Yeah, she's very much a character in the context of other people, I think. And Ivana does not last long. We pretty much see her, I think we see her entire run. Yeah, Ivana's did make me laugh because she said she looks super cool. She gets shot very quickly while trying to get to the 250 euro carousel, which we know from other runs is about 10 feet from the start point. It's literally the first ride they pass. And that made, made her climb to near the top of my suspect list because I submitted my suspect list right before the execution. I'm like, oh. That's one person I can rule out. 
But yeah, it's funny. It's funny with Yvonne's run, though. Like, these are all my notes for it. Yvonne is the sixth and last person to go. She says, I looked super cool. There's someone behind her. She gets hit. End of show. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, wonder if she even lasted over a minute there. If it really was just a matter of, say, 30, 45 seconds. I think it was very rapid, given we know how close everything was when uh, when we saw the other runs. I don't think she lasted very long. So Art teases them when they all reunite. They earned 1,250 euros of 2750 for the challenge. He says he's proud of them, but tells them absolutely nothing about the other three. And Joachim says afterwards that he's convinced that the snipers were the other three. That's what I had in my notes too, right before Joachim said I'm like thinking, hmm, it makes sense if the other three were snipers and they were playing for yokers or another rice jetting. But that is not the case. They were, in fact, a couple of them. One of them was very, very, very far away from this amusement park. So, Emanuela opens her room. Roos's stuff is still there, but she is not. And it's the same with Jeroen and Diedrich for Sanna and Thomas. They wake up on day four, still as a group of six. And their breakfast drinks intrigued me, I'll have to be honest. Because we see a couple of times that Ivana had a Snapple. I wrote down that too. Here you know you're on the West Coast in Canada or the States if you see a bunch of people buying Snapples at a cafe. Do you think she enjoyed it more or less than Mallory from Amazing Race 18? I think less. I don't know if you can enjoy it more than Mallory did. Did you also notice what Jochen was drinking? Uh, presumably about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. Was it a beer? It was a Coke, I think. Ugh. You know as well as I do, I have a very sweet tooth. Even I don't drink Coke for breakfast. Yeah, I've never been a big soda person. Well, Coke is my least favorite soda. I just do not like how it feels on my teeth afterwards, so I probably stopped drinking Coca-Cola really about when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I'm thinking, this, this soft drink isn't for me. Whereas I probably stopped drinking it about 10 or 11 minutes ago. They say they're still confused about what's going on. Sana suggests, as a group, that they do not give the other three any information. Not that they went to the fair. Not that it was a laser game. Not that they earned any money. Absolutely nothing. Maybe Joachim is one of those people who just... Uh, there's there's people where they say, oh, my favourite drink is water. And then there's other people that say, oh, I might drink water once every... might have a glass of water once every few days. You could be one of those people. Like me. You only have water once every few days? I don't have water that often. I drink a lot of milk. Not kind of Mike Wozniak levels necessarily, but I drink a lot of milk. Interesting. So Art tells us that Roos, Yaron, and Diedrich have disappeared. He is in a suit, and he says the mole will do what they do best in this group, divide and conquer, before he walks into a courthouse. And they are in the Gus J. Solomon courthouse for the final challenge. Ivana says she's very excited to be in an American courthouse, just like on TV. Probably was used on TV. Yeah, I meant to actually Google whether it had been used for any filming locations. I'd be very surprised if it hadn't. Oh, here we go. IMDb has a thing just for filming locations. It was used in not Hunted, but The Hunted, which is a 2003 film starring Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro. And it was used in an episode of the TV show Grimm. And that was it was used in 2017. It's, it, was, it, was, it was used after it was used in Vidim. I'd sort of assumed that it probably had been used in TV and film before just because it's likely that the permits would have been super easy to get to film there. Considering Oregon has to find a way to compete with California or Washington State, I'm going to guess permits are a lot cheaper in Oregon. Yeah, permits will be a lot cheaper, but 
they'll have the infrastructure at that courthouse already to go, well, we can accommodate lots of filming here. And we even get a look at portraits of President Obama and Vice President Biden, which dates this filming ever so slightly, especially as this episode would have aired six days before Trump's inauguration. And yes, I did actually have to look up the uh, release date of this episode. What helps with it, too, is that when Diedrich's in the hotel, we do see footage of him watching Trump on a news channel. It's kind of funny because I just finished watching all seven seasons of Parks and Recreation, and Biden makes multiple cameos in that show while he's vice president. He does indeed. So Art speaks to them not as candidates, but as members of the jury. The other three will be on trial and will tell a story about the last 24 hours. One of them is lying. If they pick the correct guilty party, they will earn a thousand euros to the pot. If they incorrectly accuse someone, then the liar will get an exemption. Sigrid goes no, like she's Vincent. And Sanna looks genuinely pissed off. It's made even better by the fact that obviously Sanna at this point does not know that there was a claw grabbing machine filled with yokers, black exemptions and green exemptions. I like how even Dutch contestants hate jury duty as much as Americans do. I sort of like the idea with the claw-grabbing machine that someone could have monopolised all of the advantage in them this season. Because I think there is... There's one more exemption, I think, handed out for the rest of the season. And there is, I think, two or four more yokers handed out for the rest of the season. There's really not much in the way of advantages left in this season. So I kind of like the idea that someone could have got all 22 yokers out, both of the green exemptions, both of the black exemptions and run the season as a result of this. Yeah, just be like, wait, 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 why are you taking so long on your turn? Hold on, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, two green exemptions, one black exemption. Okay, I'm coming back now. (laughs) Genuinely, with seven tests left, you could have been exempt officially for two of them and played four yokers for each of the remaining five and get yourself to the final and be essentially unbeatable. I have the Deathly Hollows of Vidum. It is basically the most overpowered challenge possible, is a claw machine of all things. So Euron is the first suspect, we know from Renaissance he's a terrible liar, and he says he was taken from the assignment with Diedrich, and told that he would be performing with the band as Elvis Presley that evening. He had to prepare a set list and then memorise the lines, he got to dress up like Elvis and did five songs which the crowd loved, that's definitely a lie, and he says he received quite a few compliments for the first time ever. Bruce is second, she says her walkie-talkie was slapped out of her hand and then she was guided into her van, and she was told that she was flying to Vegas. Sigurd says she doubts anyone had time to fly to Vegas. Bruce wanted a picture with Elvis, so went to the strip. When she crossed the street, she saw Elvis with a bag and a suit on. She got two Elvises for the price of one, and she did drink and wanted one of the huge pink cocktails. Yvonne thinks that she lied. What's funny is because Ruth tries really hard to look like she could possibly be lying when she's telling the story. And oh, what I was thinking when I was watching it was, let's see, your own seems to be telling the truth. Ruth is telling the truth because she's trying, she was trying to be pretend to be nervous and she was rubbing her face, rubbing her nose. I'm thinking she's trying too hard to be deceitful here. Because I was thinking, do the people who tell the truth, do they get something out of it? If, uh, do all three of them get some sort of incentive? Because only one person really benefits from uh, telling the truth but get picked out as a liar. I was thinking that as well. Because there is absolutely no incentive for, in this case, Yaroan or Roos, to not tell the truth. Because if they 
if they make it blatantly obvious that Diedrich is lying, then the group as a whole get a thousand euros. Assuming assuming neither of them are the mole, then that really is a helpful thing for them, surely. They have no incentive to help Diedrich here at all. No, because there's no they can't they can't get an exemption. It's like, well, as long as the jury believes them, the pot gets a thousand euros, and if the jury doesn't believe them, then somebody else is immune and their chances of going home get higher. Exactly. They end up if they make themselves suspicious, they end up actively sabotaging themselves. And not in terms of money, but also in terms of a higher risk of being executed. I was just really surprised with how much Ruse was trying to pretend to be a well, uh, trying to pretend like she was lying. Unless Ruse and your own thought something might be in it for them, thinking, well, if we if we trick the jury, maybe we get something out of it. But they just didn't know. So Diedrich is the last person up. He had to pack for a night and then received an envelope after an hour telling him he was going to Crater Lake National Park in southern Oregon. He went up a mountain and saw the Volcano Lake, then went downstream in a kayak. Instead, he saw a beaver in its natural habitat, as well as eight baby beavers. And he's described as believable. What's funny is I wrote in my notes, uh, suspect number three. Diedrich went to the Volcano National Park, whatever it was called, uh, he saw canoes and kayaks. My next line is, I think Diedrich is lying. <laughs> but two sentences, two or three sentences into his story, I wrote down, I think Diedrich is lying. And then at the end, I'm thinking he is being way too detailed. No way he is telling the truth. Have you ever seen a baby beaver? Uh, I don't know about a baby beaver, but because there are beavers live in the creek right by my old house. There are, there are lots of beavers that live in the town, hence the beaver being the national animal of Canada. But I was thinking, I don't know if beavers hang out near volcanoes. <laughs> so in the end, Santa votes for Euroan, Thomas, Sigrid, and Ivana vote for Roos, and Joachim votes for Diedrich. We don't know who Emanuela said, not that it matters. They officially accuse Roos, which is wrong. It was actually Diedrich who lied. And that means that they earned nothing of a thousand euros for the challenge, 1,700 of 6,250 for the episode, and 4,200 of 9,750 for the season so far. Did you notice how the voting went down? That somebody, did you notice who abstained from voting? Well, it was, Emanuela was the only one we didn't see vote. Yeah, she abstained. She was like China at the UN. Given that she was the one writing the verdicts down, I'm assuming she was the foreman of the jury, basically, so she would have only voted in the event of a tie. She's basically head of household. So unsurprisingly, Yaron did actually do the Elvis thing, and we get to see it for our sins. It was just as terrible as you'd imagine. Roos had nothing to hide. She did drink and gamble in Vegas, and doesn't even seem to have changed her top. Well, all of her stuff was in her room. Emmanuel saw it. <laughs> That's the main clue that Diedrich was lying, because Diedrich said that he got to pat for a night, whereas we already had it established that all of their stuff was still there. And in fact, Diedrich was still wearing the same t-shirt he was in the previous day. And to get, and to do stuff like kayaking and canoeing and seeing wildlife, you have to do that pretty early in the morning. In fact, there's a lot of wildlife ventures around the planet where either you go like right at sunrise or right at sunset. <laughs> I will defer to your experience of going looking for beavers early in the morning. <laughs> So then we get our traditional bond catch-up scenes. Thomas and Diedrich have a bond catch-up. Diedrich says he lied for the exemption, but everything he said to Thomas previously was true. They agree to extend their bond and talk later to exchange information. 
Joachim and Sigrid have a catch-up as well. He doesn't have the room number of Roos and Emanuela. Sigrid says that she doesn't have to watch what she says around him, which makes him trustworthy. Roos and Emanuela exchange information as well. Emanuela admits to her that they made a no-sharing pact as a group of six, but they didn't agree anything about Roos potentially reading her mole book. Reading is not speaking. <laughs> she knows that's a very deceitful loophole, right? Like, she's essentially, she, she's breaking the rule there. That is a taskmaster loophole, and I am here for it. I mean, every single time Emmanuela's on the screen, it just, it lights up. She is brilliant in the opening two episodes of this season so far. I'd forgotten how good she is, and I'd always remembered her as being really good in this episode, but I'd forgotten how good she is in the first two. She is brilliant in the first two episodes. So... It is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least will go home, except for the mole, who can never go home. Diedrich has an exemption as a result of his duplicity, and the test takes place at Director Park. Thomas says it's his first real execution. He still suspects your own, and Ruth and Emanuela both join him on the list. Emanuela had four suspects, and now it's six. She says she wants to reduce it back to four because six is too many. Ivana suspects Ruth because she was pretty good at pretending to lie. And that's why Ivana thinks she's the mole. Roos plays the odds. She goes for any answer where a majority could be. Joachim is putting the first six on Sanna, second six on Diedrich, and the rest on Roos. Sanna's observations say Emmanuel is the mole, and Sigrid is also suspicious. Sigrid's on your own because he's unreadable and mysterious. Rowan says he's completely gambling, he was missing for an entire day, and has to guess as a result. Diedrich played his exemption. Whoever from the remaining eight made the most mistakes will go home, unless it was a tie, in which case it's on time. And that is the case in this execution. I do have to say, this execution's very public. It is not a quiet place. I think just because it's, like, because it's Portland, that it doesn't raise too many eyebrows. You know as well as I do, there are a lot of mole fans in that area of the world. In the US, there are a lot of mole fans. But in Portland? I'm not sure about Portland particularly, but I'm really surprised that none of this got leaked. Because I don't think it did. I don't think anyone knew they were in Oregon until it got announced. It's just, it's just a book club meeting outside on a nice day. I would have thought that somebody would have spotted Art and gone, what the fucking hell's he doing in Director Park? That's weird. So your Rowan gets a green screen, and I suspect that Art probably got to stack the the green screens, because he did get to say Elvis is not leaving the building and was very proud of himself. I've said this on multiple occasions now, you can tell Art has a lot of fun with these executions. He's having a blast. Unlike Rick at times. Rick always seems a little bit serious and miserable, and Art just has a lot of fun with them. Like teasing them at the end of the uh, at the end of the laser game, like teasing your own here for being associated with Elvis rather than being a really awful mole. I can't tell if Diedrich was happy to be stuck in a hotel room for 24 hours doing nothing, or to avoid being labelled as an Elvis, as Elvis Presley. Do you think Diedrich was actually stuck in a hotel room for 24 hours? I hope not, because that would suck as a Vidim experience. You're being kidnapped, what are you, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? Oh yeah, you're going to hang out and be in this hotel room for 24 hours? I don't think he was, I think he... Given that all we saw was the exterior of where he was, I suspect he was probably in a fairly scenic location and just got the day to himself. 
and then they took the B-roll of him lying on a bed watching Trump on CNN. Maybe he watched a National Geographic special about beavers. Well, that's the thing. Diedrich's lie probably comes from his work as a science journalist. He probably has been to Crater Lake National Park. He probably has seen beaver in the wild. He would have just drawn on that experience to make it a more believable lie. Yeah, it's what Leslie Nielsen, uh, Leslie Neeson does. Liam Neeson. No, I was thinking Leslie Nielsen. Well, no, wait, no, I combined the two names. Liam Neeson. That's what Liam Neeson does. So yeah, Euron gets green screen as to Thomas, Ruth, and Senna before Ivana trusts her instincts, closes her eyes, and leaves. Everyone just freezes too. Everyone just doesn't even know how to react at first. Nobody does anything for a solid. Three to five seconds, like, oh yeah, we should probably give her a hug. <laughs> she told Roos that she didn't spread. She had a good feeling about who it was. Thomas says she was a sweet girl and her softness will be missed in the group. She tells Art that she couldn't resist going all in, even though she's seen the show before. Someone else is just a little bit quicker than her. She took the last test quickly, but she slowed herself down a bit this time. So the first time she went really fast and spread, this time she slowed down and went all in on one person. One of these things gets you eliminated. I wonder which one it is. So next time, fireworks go off and show messages written in the sand. Sanna ignores Diedrich's instructions and there is a speedy car ride through Portland as part of a very novel challenge. So first things first, who do you think beat Ivana on time? That's a good question. Because as I said to you earlier, we do find this out at the reunion. I'm not going to tell you whether you're right or not, but I'm interested to see who your instinct is on this. I'll guess Joachim. Okay, interesting. No, 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 he's spread. I'm going to guess Manuela. Interesting. We'll find out in seven weeks' time. Who are your suspects? So, I don't, I, I don't think your own's the mole. You know your own's not the mole. <laughs> Stop pretending. <laughs> uh, then, so it's your own, Joachim, then Sane, then Emanuela, then Diedrich, then Thomas, then Sigrid, then Bruce. Yeah, and Ivana was second. Yeah, Nirvana was second. So my suspects at the time were, in reverse order, Sana, Emanuela, Joachim, Jeroen, Thomas Roos, Diedrich, and then Sigrid. So we actually have two overlaps again. <laughs> I swear this isn't rigged, but you had Roos at number one, I had her at number three, and you had Sigrid at number two, and I had Sigrid at number one. And the top three on Bother's Bar that week were Jeroen, Joachim, and Thomas in order. Hmm. They were really leaning towards the male mole. Yep, they really were at this point. And final question of the episode, who is going home next week? Uh, who's going home next round? Secret? And, oh, I know what my final note of the episode was. Yvonne and Vincent are the worst alliance ever. They're the first two people gone. <laughs> they really are. She didn't learn anything from Vincent, basically, which is hilarious. It's like, yeah, both of you... I, I, don't, I can't recall a time where there was a two-person alliance and then they're the first two people to be eliminated on the mole. Usually, if your ally goes home, you can rule at least one person out. But that was not the case here. So have you got anything else you want to say about this episode? Nope. In that case, thank you for listening to our VS to Mole 2017 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for another old mole in Oregon. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at logsquawaki, and I'm MJ Harmstone. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles, and we will see you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring.